The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft In relating the circumstances which led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I'm aware that my present position will create natural doubt in the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh in with patience and intelligence. Those isolated phenomenon seen and felt only by the psychologically sensitive few, which lie outside of its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there's no sharp distinction betwixt the real and unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which permeates the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from the earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary, wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life, and temperamentally unfit for the formal studies and in the social recreations of my acquaintances. I have dwelt ever in the realms apart the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and roaming in the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I've read in these books or saw in those fields and groves was exactly what the other boys read and saw there, but of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect, which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone, for no human creature may do, for lacking the fellowship of the living. He inevitably draws upon the companionships of things that are not, and no longer living. Close by my home, there lies a singular wooded hollow, in which twilight deeps I spent most of my time reading, thinking, and dreaming. Down in the moss-covered slopes, my first steps of infancy were taken, and around those grotesquely gnarled oak trees, my first fancies of boyhoods were woven. Well, did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often I have watched their wild dances and struggling beams of the waning moon. But of these things I must not speak now. I will tell you only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hades, an old exalted family, whose last direct descendant had been laid within the black recesses of many decades before my birth, to which I refer of is of ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mist and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a ponderous and foreboding slab of stone, hangs upon the rusted iron hinges and is fasted ajar by a queerly sinister way of means of heavy iron chains and padlocks. According to a gruesome fashion half a century ago, the abode of the race of those scions are here and earned, had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb, but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. 
Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speaks in hushed uneasy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest dark and sepulture. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the Hades were buried in the place of shade and stillness, the sad, urnful ash had come from a distant land, to which the family had repaired when the mansion was burnt down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seems to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon which I first stumbled upon the half-hidden house of death. It was midsummer, when the alchemy of nature transmutes the Sylvian landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green, when the senses are, are well-nigh intoxicated with the surging seats of moist vendure and the subtly uh, indefinable odors of the soil and vegetation. In such surrounding, the mind loses its perspective. Time and space becomes trivial and real. Echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beats insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I have been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollows, thinking of thoughts I do not need to discuss, and conversing with things I need not name. In years, a child of ten, I have seen and heard many wonders, unknown to the throng, and was oddly aged in certain respects. When upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault. I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, and the funeral carvings above the ark aroused me to no associations of mournful or terrible character, of graves and tombs. I knew and imagined much, but had on account my particular temperaments, but had on account of my particular temperament, had been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries, the strange stone house on the woodland slope to me was only a source of entrance, a source of interest and speculation. Its cold, damp interior, which I vainly peered through, the aperture so tantalizingly left, contained for me no hint of death or decay, but in that instant of curiosity was, was born the madly unreasoning desire which brought me to this hell of confinement, spurred by the voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest, I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous change which barred my entry. In the waning light of the day, I alternately, I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view of throwing wide the stone door and essay to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided, but neither plan uh, met with success. At first curious, uh, I was now frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, and I have sworn to a hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would one day force an entrance into the black, chilly depths which seemed calling out to me. The physician, with the gr iron-gray beard who comes each day to my room, once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginning of a pitiful monomania. But I will leave the final judgment on my readers. Shaha learnt all. 
The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complacent lock of the slightly open vault in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditionally receptive ears of a small boy, I learned much. Through a habitual secretness, caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It was perhaps worth mentioning that I was not all surprised or terrified on learning the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion, and I felt that the great and sinister family of the burnt-down mansion was in some way represented in the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose doors I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrusted a candle within the nearly closed entrance, and I can see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downwards. The odor of the place repelled, yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eating translation of the Plutarch's lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading of the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by the passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boy Shiro was to find tokens of his destiny whenever he should become old enough to lift the enormous weight. The legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself I should grow in strength and ingenuity, which might enable me to unfasten the heavy chain door with ease, but until then I would do better by conforming to what seems the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches and my dank portal became less persistent. Much of my time was spent through equally strange pursuits. I would sometimes rise quietly in the night, stealing out to walk those church uh, yards and places of burial which I had been kept by my parents. What I didn't there I may not say, for I am not sure of the reality of certain things, but I know that on the day after such nocturnal ramblings I would often astonish those about me with the knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this, I shocked the community with a queer conceit of the burial of the rich and celebrated Squire Brewster, a maker of local history, who was interred in 1711, whose slate headstone bearing a graven skull and crossbones was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination, I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodsman Simpson, have stolen the silver-buckled shoes silken hose and satin small clothes from the deceased before the burial, but the squire himself was not fully inanimate, and had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day after interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts. 
being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery of my own maternal ancestry, possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hades. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of the older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time that I might pass within the stone door down those slimy stone steps in the dark. I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight, stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained facade of the hillside, allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like roofs and walls of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple. The fastened door was my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched in the mossy ground thinking strange thoughts and dreaming strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one. I have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distant sense of awaking that I had heard the voice, that I had heard the voices of those tones and accents I hesitate to speak, of their quality I will not speak, but I may say that they presented a certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterances, every shade of New England dialect, from uncouth syllables from the puritanical colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed to be presented in their shattery colloquy, though it was only later I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my intention was distracted from a matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting, I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that I was awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home, I went with much directness from a rotting chest in the attic where I found the key, which next day unlocked with ease the barrier which I had long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of an afternoon which I first entered the vault of the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me. My heart leaped with an exultation. I can but ill describe. Close the door behind me and descend the dripping stairs by the light of my lone candle. I seemed to know the way, and through the candle sputter with its the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty, charnel house air. I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins or remains of those coffins. Some of those were sealed and intact, but others were nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640 and died here a few years later. In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and unattended casket, adored with a single name which brought me, brought me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, 
and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn, I staggered from the vault, locked the chain on the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though through twenty-one winters I had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked and marveled at the sign of ribald reverie which they saw in one whose life was known of s to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long, refreshing sleep. Hence I haunted the tomb each night, seeing and hearing and doing things I must never reveal. My speech was always accessible to the environmental influences was the first thing to succumb to the change. And my sudden acquired anachronism of diction would soon be remarked upon. Later, a queer boldness and recklessness came onto my demeanor, until unconsciously I grew my prowess of the bearing of a man of the world despite my lifelong seclusion. My formerly silent tongue waxed vulbally with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless... A cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a particular erudition, utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore which I had poured in, and covered the, the flyleafs of my books with the facile impromptu epigrams which, which brought up suggestions of gay, prior, sprightliest of the Augustian wit and, and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast, I came close to disaster by declaiming in a palpable licorice accent in the infusion of a 18th century bacchanalian mirth a bit of gregorian playfulness never recorded in a book which ran something like this come hither my lads with your tankards of ale and drink to the present before it shall fail pile upon your platter a mountain of beef for tis eating and drinking that brings us relief so fill up your glass for life shall soon pass when you're dead your never drink to your king or your lass. And a cron had a red nose, so they say. But what is a red nose if ye happy and gay? Egad split me, I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and, and dead half a year. So Betty, my miss, come give me my kiss. And in hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, uh, propped up, straight as he's able, thou will soon lose his wig and slip under the table. But fill up your goblets and pass them around, better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff, as ye thirstfully croft, six feet under of dirt, tis less easy to laugh. The fiend strikes me blue, I'm scarce able to walk, and damn me if I'm able to stand up right or talk. Here landlord bid Betty to summon a chair, I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. Lend me a hand, for I'm not able to stand. But I'm gay, whilst I linger on top of this land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms. Previously indifferent to such things, I had now had an unspeakable horror of them, and would retire in the intermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of my... The day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burnt down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as if it had been in its prime. On one occasion, I startled a villager by leading him confidently to the shallow of the sub-cellar, of whose existence I seemed to know 
in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came, to which I long feared, my, my parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened. I have told no one of my visits to the tomb, guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood, but now I was forced to exercise care in treading the mazes of the woodlit, wooded hollow, so I may throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault, I kept suspended from a cord around my neck, its presence known only to me. I never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon, waltz in its walls. One morning I emerged from the damp tomb, fastened the chain to the portal, with none too steady a hand, and I beheld an adjacent thicket, a dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered, and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. So my sojourns beyond the chained doors was to be proclaimed to the world. Imagine my delighted astonishment of hearing the spy inform my parents in a cautious whisper that I spent the night in the bower outside of the tomb, my sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlock portal stood ajar. By what miracle have the Watcher been thus deluded? I was now convinced of a supernatural agency that protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume my perfect openness into going to the vault, confident that no one would witness my entrance. For a week, I tested to the fullest of joys of the charnel convertility, which I must not describe. When the thing happened, I was borne away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds and the hellish phosphorescence rose from a rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was a charred cellar in the crest of the slope whose presiding demon beckoned me with its unseen fingers. As I emerged from the intervening grove from the plain before the ruin, I beheld the misty moon night, a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion gone for a century once more reared its stately heights and to the raptured vision, every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up on the long drive rolled the coaches of Boston Gentry, Waltz. On foot came the numerous assemblage of the powdered exquisites from the neighborhood mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the host rather than the guest. Inside the hall was music. Laughter and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognize, though I would have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. Suddenly a pill of thunder, resonant even above the den of swinish reverie, clave the roof and laid a hush of fear among the boisterous company. 
Red tongues of flame seared. Red tongues of flames and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisters, struck with terror, a descent of calamity, which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained riveted to my seat by the groveling fear which I had never felt, and the second horror took possession of my soul, burnt alive to the ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds. I might never lie in the tombs of Hades. Was not my coffin prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest until eternity among the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? I, I would claim the heritage of death, even though my soul goes seeking through the ages for another corporeal uh, tenement to represent it on the vacant slab of the alcove in the vault. Jervis Hyde would never share the sad fate of Plurnurus. As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was a spy who followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon there were flashes of lightning that seemed to have lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonished my captors to treat me as gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told me of a violent stroke from the heavens, and from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectiveless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove and was permitted to share their discoveries. The box whose fastens were broken by the stroke, which had unearthed it, contained many papers and objects of value, but I had eyes for one thing alone. It was a porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled a bag wig and bore the initial J.H., its face was such as I gazed. I might as well have been studying my mirror. On the following day, I was brought to the room with the barred windows, kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor, for whom I bore fondness in my infancy, and who, like me, loved the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault had brought me only pitying smiles, my father, who visits me frequently, declares that there's at no time did I pass the chain portals, and swears that the rusted padlock had never been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and I was often watched as I slept in the bower outside of the grim facade, my half-open eyes fixed upon the crevice that leads to the interior. Against the assertion, I have no tangible proof to offer, since the key to my padlock was lost in the struggle on the night of horror. The strange things of the past which I have learnt during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruit of, of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the, the ancient volumes of the family library. Had not been for my old servant Hiram, had not been for my old servant Hiram, I would have been quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, had held faith in me, and had done which impels me to make public at least part of my story. A week ago he burst open the locks which changed the doors to the tombs perpetually, 
uh, ajar and descended with a lantern to the murky depths. On the slab of an alcove, he found an old but empty coffin, whose tarnished plates that bears but a single word, Jervis. In that coffin, in that vault, they promised me I shall be buried. <laughs>